Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. I'd like to thank, of course, before we get into this, is our partner, Real Estate Forms. This is the top five highlights of the Toronto Real Estate Forum, which took place earlier this week. And our guest for all of these highlight shows is Peter Altabelli, who is the Vice President of uh, Yardi. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for doing this again. This is number five, the last one of the year. I hope you're not sick yeah, of the us last yet. one. Is, wow, it's been, it's been great. It's been a, a great to participate and be part of it. Aaron, thanks so much. Adam, thanks for the invitation on, on getting involved in doing these podcasts with you. So this is top five highlights. Typically, we've kind of counted down to the number one. But this year, there was so much content. We probably could have done like a top 20 show, but I don't think anybody wants to sit and listen to us babble for five hours on that stuff. So we're going to keep it to just the five highlights in no particular order. We're actually just going to do it chronologically. I guess we'll just start sort of the first big moment was Benjamin Tall of CIBC, The Economist, and his outlook on kind of, I think part of it was what's transpired in 2020. Part of it was kind of what the impact that is in 2021. Benjamin's a staple of these things, but always, always very fascinating. Benjamin's always a pleasure to listen to and watch. I've enjoyed all of his sessions. Whenever he's speaking, I, I clear my calendar to make sure that I have an opportunity to watch and listen to what he's got to say. There's a couple of things. A, he's very insightful. B, he goes right to the point of what it means to you, the individual, to you, the person running the company, and to the market in which we all work in. So overall, I thought it was fantastic to hear him, and I thought he was dead on. And consistent on a number of different things that he talked about earlier in the year, repeating it again, which is he's still very, very strong on the second half of 2021. I mean, he admitted it's going to be a difficult winter like we're all facing, but but he's saying for business, the second half of 2021 is going to be very, very strong and has been consistent on that. It was great to see how he not just made the statement, but made the statement and then backed it why he felt that that was going to happen, which really puts a positive spin on next year where, you know, you can get lost in the difficulties of the day and the difficulties of the next several months, right? With both personal and in your business where you're saying, geez, where are we going to go and how are we going to do it? But I thought he was great. I took away a lot of things from that conversation on, on how to strategically plan your business, how to look at things and moving forward, what we need to be doing. Yeah, he was. Uh, there's a number of panelists who were, you know, have a similar message that between now and March is going to be very unpleasant but the recovery should be V-shaped. He provided a whole lot of data to uh, support that. And then for Aaron and I, as lenders, we pay attention to the bond rates, of course, and bonds are a reflection of you know, how much fears the market. And he was saying that we'll be up 50 beeps by the end of the year. So for anybody that's thinking about mortgages that would impact you, even coming off of historic lows, 50 beeps is not a disaster, but he is predicting an increase over that time frame. There was a chart he had up. And I didn't get a chance to digest the other nations, but I'm assuming it was sort of a selection of G20 countries. And at the very top of government spending per person was Canada. And it wasn't like he was sounding alarmed, like being like, look how much money you've spent. He was almost saying, this is a good thing. This is what you should be doing. Put as much money into the economy and you'll have the faster recovery. And therefore, you'll be better off in the long run. Oh, and by the way, money's going to be cheap forever. So don't worry about piling on all this debt on your sort of sovereign balance sheet. I don't want to detract from one of the later sessions we're going to talk about, but Michael Cooper did say that. He was asked the question, who's going to pay for all this? And he simply says, nobody. 
nobody's ever going to pay for it. We're just going to carry it forever. And I thought that was a candid moment for Michael Cooper, who's known for that. So was, that's why I like seeing him on panels. So when you hear a couple of the panelists saying the same things, talking about the same item, and during this pandemic, we see that often, but let's not worry about the debt. Let's just make sure that we can get life back to normal. And you're right, no one's going to pay for this, so why worry about it? Essentially, that was the messaging that you got. Like, don't worry about that someone's children's children are going to be saddled with this debt. It's just going to get carried and moved forward. Let's worry about getting the economy back, society back, and there are more pressing things to deal with. But, you know, moving from that long-term picture of debt, you know what, the other thing that surprised me quite a bit was you also had that other slide that said there is $90 billion sitting in checking accounts that people want to spend that can't. And another $80 billion in excess cash from businesses on top of the $100 billion the federal government says they're going to spend to help us with the recovery. I guess this is the, the light at the end of the tunnel in the sense of there's going to be all this ready cash coming into the economy once this virus is taken care of and, and, and we're probably sitting in that July-August time frame when the vaccinations are going well and the economy is back and people are back, that the pent-up demand for spending will be there and we're going to have that v-shaped quick recovery out of this predicament that we find ourselves in and, and and you know we keep on saying there's going to be a really long winter i think the sunshine will be there and it will be could be a fantastic summer and fall with that much excess of cash coming into the market very very quickly and it's not all government which is great too it's going to be combinations of government business and individuals he did highlight specifically that high-income earners had really pulled back on their spending throughout this, which does make sense. If you're, most of your paychecks are going to essentials, that's going to continue throughout. And I know that there's a lot of high-income earners in real estate, so don't be afraid to pull out the credit card in uh, March when we're looking to get the economy restarted and do your part. <laughs> well, before we move on, I got one other comment that I thought was really interesting about how, I mean, the Bank of Canada is buying up bonds. By one of the charts he had showed that on this current projection it's going to be that Bank of Canada is buying, I think it's something like 50% of all bonds issued by the Canadian government, you know, which is, yeah. which is just insane to think about. But that's no different. And this is back to the, one of the final things we'll talk about, that Michael Cooper panel that was on there. One of them said, like, what's the difference between printing money or buying bonds? If the government is issuing bonds and the Bank of Canada is buying them, it's no, it's no difference. It's just additional liquidity in the market. What was curious that Benjamin Tall identified is he didn't seem to be concerned about that at all. And what he was actually saying is that the way that the Bank of Canada is going about that transaction is really more focusing on the longer end of the curve, focusing on longer term bonds. And then he said that that's something that the Fed is doing as well, that the, the U.S. Treasury approach is actually following along with what the Bank of Canada is doing. It's really more focusing in or honing in on the way that they're adding the stimulus, not just buying anything and everything, but focusing in on the longer term debt. And I guess by, by virtue, steepening the curve, so to speak. So Interesting. I just find the whole thing, what's going on, and that people don't seem to be, he, as an economist, an expert, didn't seem to be that concerned about the amount of money and stimulus that the governments across the world are flooding into the marketplace. Yeah, Aaron, I got the same impression and left with the same feeling that no one was too concerned about bringing on the extra debt and spending the money and keeping things going at all. And you would think the economists would be the ones that would really sound those alarms, right? And even with the Bank of Canada buying the bonds, it's almost like one arm of the country's giving them out and the other arm's buying it. But you're right. It's the liquidity factor. And I think they're just buying time and they want to make sure that the long-term interest rates are staying in check as well. The other last thing I wanted to bring up on this was immigration, right? In 2021, he's saying, you know, up to 300,000 and then 400,000 by 2022, which are the targets. 
And he feels that that's going to be achievable in 2021, which should really bring back that rental market, should come back in and start to kick in again. And I think once we see that happen, at least in the multifamily space, there will be a lot more um, room to maneuver and everyone can take a big deep breath in terms of vacancy rate and getting back to the market that they're accustomed to in all the major centers. You know, I think we could keep going because Benjamin was on there for an hour and always is interesting, but we need to keep moving. So the next one that I think deserves a bit of conversation was one of my favorite authors, a gentleman named Thomas Friedman, who's ultimately like a foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times. But he kind of came on and if you know him, I think he just kind of rambled or just kind of spit out the kind of things that go on in his brain. But his general topic was the intersection of technology, globalization, climate change, and just how all those things are, I want to say, rapidly increasing or are picking up momentum. They had these constant themes of depth and how these things are getting deeper and deeper and more intertwined and kept relating back to his original book that I think many people are familiar with about how the world is flat. And that was in 2004 and how it's just way more flat and interconnected than ever before. I, I thought he was I mean, he's clearly one of the greater minds of our generation, but just really interesting to hear the way that he thinks and just the way that he makes connections. You know, I looked at it, I was amazed in how he thought, his thought process and how he's able to glue it all together and take these very complex, what he's seeing around the world, which is so complex in so many different areas and how he can just, in three or four points, just glue them all together. And then the way that we used to operate as as societies, as countries, as political systems, on a going forward basis, if we continue down this this momentum of bringing the world together and globalization and the use of technology around globalization, the old ways of working is not going to work. The old political structures, social structures are going to have to evolve and change along with the way the world is changing and becoming more global, not individual countries as we see today. And then his examples, and he brought in many of them, I thought were fantastic, you know, and his ability to sing is not bad, too. He can hold a tune. <laughs> but, yeah. but he can hold I'm a not going to sing it. Yeah, so, he's saying, I got the whole world in my hand. World, and he references it. It's not, it's he, she, and he's talking about how Mother Nature is basically showing us right. the, her power and that she's basically got all of us in her hand right now. And if you read between the lines, he's basically saying, like, Mother Nature is saying, don't screw with me. If I want to, I can end you as a species on my right. earth, right? And, you know, it, it takes a lot of courage to get up and speak for an audience, but probably even more so to get up and sing for a crowd when you're not a trained singer. I was very impressed by that. Yeah, and, you know, he did it in such a way where everyone's going to smile and chuckle. But you know what, Aaron, you're right. He was dead on. It's just this is Mother Earth saying, let's get back to some basics here. And it's very simple for me to cause or inflict incredible amount of pain on people very, very quickly, which is what we're all experiencing today. And so take care of the place, take care of yourselves, take care of your society, and by all means, please take care of this planet. And I think a lot of his points all went down to those three areas, which is as you flatten the world and as you go deep and wide in, in globalizing this world, you need to take care of the societies, the people, and the planet. And if you don't, you won't have any of those things left. And you won't have any of the warnings of the heart attack versus the pandemic. And he gave three or four really good examples of this going back decades. You can see this, right? And he's saying you could go back and see what occurred. And there was cause and effect to small things that arose, arose to very large events throughout the world and to society. 
I thought it was fantastic to get here and pull all of this together. And I think people need to listen. Yeah, I mean, a couple of points I thought that were really connected. You know, one, of course, that this is an opportunity to accelerate our performance in those specific areas that in these times of great change, you, know, you can use them for the positive. <laughs> Human nature notwithstanding, <laughs> you hope that we end up with a, with a positive outcome from all of this. But I, I thought that it was really well presented, really poignant. And he's not a real estate person, but he's speaking to a real estate crowd and still made it connect. I thought he was it was a job well done on uh, his part. Yeah, yeah, me too. And when he looks at the dynamics of the world, he gave an example from 3G to 5G. A two-hour movie download on 3G was 26 hours. Under 5G, it's going to be 3.6 seconds. And to me, it's not the technology. It's an illustration of the technology on how the world has so dramatically changed, fused together, and where we're going and how fast we're going in, in these different directions. And when you look at that change, right, you just use that movie as an example. It's amazing to see what's going to happen. Fast forward five, 10 years from now and relate that back to real estate 10, 15 years ago. How did these companies work versus today versus how is real estate industry going to work in five or 10 years from now? And I think this industry is going to see some dramatic changes. We'll move on, but I've got one more comment that I thought was really interesting. I had you said it. Like, if you can figure out how to get on to watch Thomas, you really should find it. I would encourage everybody to take the time. Well, Aaron, so, quick plug. If you sign up for the Ref Club, you get access to this conference for 24 or four months. So okay, we might as well use the opportunity yeah, to uh, <laughs> help yeah, out our enough. partner, Canadian Real Estate <laughs> Forum. There's a very easy Thanks. way to source it out. <laughs> Thanks for doing that. I was focused more on not screwing up what I'm about to say, which is one of the things that Thomas Freeman was talking about regularly throughout his diatribe, quite frankly, was this the relationship between educator, innovator, and regulator. Innovator being the corporations, government being the educator and regulator. And this was like a 15-minute conversation he had, but quite frankly, he was talking at multiple levels about how that relationship between government, educate, business, innovate is changing, where businesses are now bringing in education. And it yeah. was on a just-in-case versus just-in-time. Historically, you learn in a just-in-case, meaning here's some information you might need just in case versus teaching people what they need, they actually need, which is the way that businesses teach. If you think about all the times you sat in a class learning about, I don't know, <laughs> derivatives or algebra or something that you probably have never used right. in your entire life. So businesses are no longer going to waste students' time. What I thought was really interesting, and this will be the last point, which made me laugh out loud was, he said he was reading the, some during the Boeing crisis where there was some issues with different regulators. There was a memo internally at Boeing about how watching the regulators watch me is like, and this is a Boeing employee saying, watching the regulators watch Boeing is like watching a dog watch TV. And the point was the innovation in the business level is so fast and so rapid that the regulators, the government can't keep up and they don't even know what to look for. I mean, I, I experienced that just in a mortgage world. I'm sure everybody on the business side experiences that well. And that is a real challenge. I think that really the crux of what he was saying is that we're also interconnected. The world's moving so quickly that the government needs to figure out a way to keep up. And right now they're not. Yeah, agreed. Uh, our third section that we want to highlight, it was a great conversation, was Stephen Polos, the ninth governor of the Bank of Canada. It was a candid conversation between him and Blake Hutchison. I thought Blake did a great job as interviewer. I've definitely seen Blake do a, be interviewee quite often, but it was good to see him on the other side. And Stephen's message was you know, not dissimilar. I, I, a while ago, I read a book by Timothy Geithner about getting through the 2008-9 crisis. And it's a massive, massive book, and it boils down to basically a wall of capital. More is better than less, and faster is better than accurate. And Stephen Polo is just kind of, casually throws it a very similar message 
regarding the current crisis now is it, yeah, get the money out, keep printing. That's what got everybody through the 2008-9 crisis. And I guess that is the big takeaway for a number of governments is the delays are way more costly than not. Aaron already referenced, of course, that chart that showed that Canadian government spent more per capita than anybody else. But maybe the time in, the, in, in history, it will be, it'll be shown that was the right move. Peter, what did you think of his presentation or his uh, conversation with Blake? Yeah, I thought first to get a governor of the Bank of Canada on, I thought that was like incredible for Informa able to do, to be able to host this and put it in front of this entire real estate community and for Canada, which is fantastic. I thought it was incredibly insightful. And, and obviously, central banks think a lot different than everybody else. I think that one of the biggest impressions I got is they seem to be in a whole different world. Then, then we're sitting in locally. I mean, we, you know, everyone's talking about money and loans and paying them back and managing debt levels, managing equity levels. And, and they're in a whole world of cash and liquidity. And let's not worry about how much debt we have. We'll just print more money because we can and we know how. But on the other hand, let's be responsible enough to ensure the fact that when we're doing this, we're doing it in a way that will benefit society, in this case, Canada, moving forward. And I thought the interview was fantastic between the two gentlemen and how they were able to get into topics that could have lots of politics around it, but they stayed away from the politics and actually stayed directly into the economic impacts and the positioning of the bank. I mean, it's funny that I, Stephen Polis's message about the big wall of capital was supported by Benjamin Tall's presentation. He said that you know initially with all the unknowns, Wall's capital was needed, but Benjamin Tall was advocating that at this point, we're a little more refined in how we're treating this. And so going forward, the application of giant amounts of capital should be a little more strategic. But that was very common messaging from the both of them in terms of you know how to, to move through this. Yeah, one of the things we should mention too is when asked by Blake what his, you know, I think most proudest moment or achievement as the head of the bank, as he said, was getting Viola Desmond on the $10 bill, which I thought was a really kind of a nice gesture and interesting that really grounds him, right? It wasn't about some intricate monetary policy, right? It was something much more sort of social. And I thought that spoke more to about who he is as an individual than anything else he said during that interview. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I think um, it showed that he was focused here in Canada. It showed that he wanted to accomplish certain things. And and the things that you would think are small are important as well, right? are incredibly important as well. So one of the other things I thought was striking about their conversation, and, and I remember having a similar conversation at home, which was after any major event, and I know when you talk about Benjamin Tall, he doesn't call this an event, right? But if you look at this as being something that's changing the world, when you go back and say, let's look at World War II and what effect happened to the economy after World War II, and the two gentlemen were discussing this as well as part of the conversation, which kind of really surprised me. But in World War II, they had higher debt levels for developing countries, and interest rates were much higher at that time as well, they spoke about. Where coming out of the war, it caused a boom to the economy. They talked about how that happened. There was lots of government spending. But is anyone worried about that debt any longer? And the answer was not really because we grew out of that debt right? It was paid over time. It's managed over time as the government got out of World War II, spent a ton of money getting the economies back. And we all know that there was a huge boom economy after the Second World War. And that the thinking, or at least the impression I got was this is what's going to happen in the latter part of 2021 and 2022, that there will be a great number of spending when this virus is now in check. People will come back. The economies will come back. Things might look a little bit different, but not that much different. 
and that not to worry about the debt that's being undertaken by countries today, whether that be Canada, the U.S., or European partners, to really move forward and that will be consumed over time and we will see the growth. The big difference today then versus, say, World War II was the level of interest rates. Interest rates were high at that time in the 40s, where today we all know the interest rate story today, and it's insignificant or very small, the interest rates, and that will also allow people to spend and move the economies forward. So I thought that that was another great, great area of discussion that he brought in. Yeah. And, you know, reiterating what you had said earlier on, Peter, about how it kind of operates in a different world, just talking about the way that he just sees things. He's not 30,000 feet or 100,000 feet. He's kind of stratospheric when he's looking down on what's going on. He thinks in 50-year chunks, not two, five, 10, or 20-year chunks, right? Right. it was very interesting to hear him to talk about, yeah, yeah, no, you just got to flood the market with capital and eventually it'll get dissipated and yeah, inflation moves. But, you know, it's like it was really, really interesting the way that he kind of almost nonchalantly talks about billions and billions and billions of dollars being spent. Let's keep moving. The next one, number four, but not in any particular order. This is literally chronologically. It was a panel. I don't want to call it the super panel, but it was a lot of senior leaders in our industry. And it, the general topic was risk challenges and best opportunities in Canada and globally for investors post-pandemic. And I'll just give you, so it was moderated by, by Peter Sense of CBRE. And then the panelists were Michael Cooper, of course, founder and president of Dream, Rob Coomer, CIO of Kingset, Dennis Lopez, CEO of Quadrille, Paul Muchaka, who's the managing partner and head of Canada Investments at BGO, and then Blair Welsh, of course, founder, I think president or something of Slate. So major, major investors, both nationally and internationally. What I thought was really interesting is to a T, they're all very bullish going into 2021. Many of them have actually been active throughout 2020. I mean, they're all acknowledging COVID has had major implications on their business, but not necessarily in a negative way, just really the challenges and tribulations of working from home and all the things that, that we've talked about historically. What I thought was consistent throughout the conversation was really the capital flows, which is where individuals of, of that level often are just thinking about in the world in that way. And they were all talking about how when crises hit, whether this is defined as a crisis or not, people flood their money into fixed income and that they all anticipate that money is going to come out of that fixed income investment and people are going to be looking for hard assets, for real assets, and that real estate in all forms and fashions is very, very well situated to benefit from that. So they're all anticipating some serious capital flows into the real estate market starting at some point in 2021 as the vaccine comes in and as the world starts to pick up. So I thought it was very, very curious and maybe not surprising that they were all aligned. There was no nobody saying, I don't, I don't agree with that. They all thought, they were all really kind of excited for what was going to transpire in, in our business in 2021. Yeah, I think I was surprised that not they were all coming together. All of them were on the same page, saying the same kinds of things, but through different viewpoints of their own organizations. And it was good to see the consistency. It raised confidence in the level of of the direction of the economy and real estate moving through the course of 2021. They talked about NOI durability. They talked about industrial, multifamily, real estate, and logistics, and, and where those things are going. And where multifamily might be a little bit low today, it's coming back. Logistics and industrial, we all know that story. It's doing incredibly well. And all of them seem to know where they wanted to be and where they wanted their organizations going in the next six to 12 months. It wasn't like they were waiting back and seeing what was going to happen. They're actively investing. They're actively moving, not just in Canada, but around the world. And they're not necessarily concerned about the next three to six months as it relates to 
this being so devastating on the economy, they're saying that we will get out of this and we're not waiting. We have a vision, we have a plan, and they're moving forward. And that was one big takeaway I took from this. I mean, there was a lot of detail they went through, but really in summary, that was a big takeaway. And when you got those CEOs of these types of organizations doing and saying this kind of stuff, a lot, you can gain a lot of comfort in our industry on what that means locally at home, right? And it's not going to be 2000, 2008 again. They all mentioned as well war chests and how that relates to the to the upcoming upswing in real estate. And when people like that are referring to war chests, it's such an enormous scale, the amount of capital waiting to be deployed in 2021. I mean, I hate to think that it's optimism that this will be a V-shaped recovery, but a lot of very, very bright people point to very believable reasons as to why it should be. And that is one of them, that at least for in our real estate sector, that there's a lot of money waiting to be deployed in 2021 as soon as there's a real clear upswing in the, the economy. So I, I think that this has been short-lived. There's also highlighted a couple of times that you know most of these crises are pretty short-lived. And while it does seem like we've been you know, locked in our house for a long time, this ends up being a year and a half all in. The recovery, you know, another 18 months, you know, three years total is not that long to have an impact with something like a global pandemic. Yeah, and Rob Coomer said something interesting along those lines, Adam, where he said, like, I think a lot of people have missed out when this started in March and April, went on full lockdown. There was, and we talked about it on the podcast a number of times, just about distressed assets and, you know, rent deferrals are going to continuously increase and there's going to be some dislocation in the real estate market. And it sounds like, anyway, with the optimism we're hearing from all the different panelists and panels that you listen to, there is no distressed assets available. If you've been sitting on a pile of capital waiting to buy something at a discount, it's not happening. And now look, these guys are all saying 2021 is going to have a, you know, there's going to just be a flood of capital into the real estate investment market and off we go, hopefully in that V-shaped recovery. So I found it very interesting. One last thing I want to mention that I thought was really interesting on that panel before we move on to the last topic was Blair Wells talking about their investment strategy and logistics and how we're seeing a mold or a melding between logistics and retail. And he actually said, quote unquote, like, where does logistics end and retail begin? Because you're starting to see more and more of this logistics being sort of online shopping and online distribution, which is quite frankly, an arm of retail. And so, you know, they're starting to see this kind of this mixing pot where retail and logistics become one and the same. And he talked about, you know, I own grocery stores, but slowly but surely, if more and more people are buying groceries online, my grocery store is now a logistics center, not a grocery store. But what's the difference to me? It's the same thing. I just thought that was an interesting perspective that I had not really put together before. Yeah, I thought the same. I thought that their view of retail and logistics and how they pull that together was quite interesting. And I, again, that same thing. I never thought of logistics and retail being that same, same type of that coming together. Also, the rethinking of retail, that they all felt it was going to be fine coming out of this, that there was going to be a bounce back to offline shopping, but better quality, better experiences, and that it would be fine, but that some of it would have to be reinvented and do a little bit more than what it's currently doing as it stands today, and that those are all opportunities waiting to be had. Our last highlight of the conference, and as, as Aaron already highlighted, this could have been a list of 20 highlights. There was there was so many, but at least the five that we picked. The last one was the Real Estate Forums picked one recurring guest to add commentary after many of the panels. I could not have thought of a better person than John Love to do that. Uh, intelligent and opinionated is exactly who you want for that. And I will encourage people, if you're not following him on LinkedIn, you really should. He really is very transparent with all his views. And a lot of the discussions that go on around it are, are very interesting. <laughs> put, we'll put a, a link in the show notes to his, uh, to his LinkedIn account. But what was your favorite John Love quote when he was doing his recaps, uh, Peter? 
You know, Adam, you can see why people are successful. When John Love speaks, his whole attitude and view of the world is just so much different. And and when you're that positive and you have that much insight and with that much intelligence, I thought it was those recaps that he was doing were fantastic. I took some notes and, and I don't think I'm going to get rid of these notes and what he was saying. But big thing for me was connect with others. Be open and pay attention to what's going on. And and he's saying pay attention because the world is going to change and opportunity that change breeds opportunity. And if you pay attention and you're open to the change, then there's opportunity for you. And recognize it. Recognize it when it happens, right? And be flexible. Know how to pivot your company. Be flexible and move with these changes. And you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be better. You'll be stronger. And you'll be more successful. And I think that's, he's recapping what he's hearing, but I think that's a lot of John Love as well. And that breeds success. And it's probably one of the reasons why he's incredibly successful at what he does and as well respected as, as he is and should be. And it's because of those attitudes and because of the way you look at problems and you look at, at life. And those are some of the takeaways I got from him overall. I have along those same lines, neither both of these have come up through our interviews and colleagues, but both John Love stories almost reiterating what you just said, Peter, about one was a gentleman named Patrick Armstrong for Snaily that was a webinar that Adam and I did that is also a podcast. I think it's either out or will be coming out soon. Snaily being sort of a package receptor type of hardware and software for apartments and offices. He was cold emailing, just emailed blasting anybody and everyone when he was starting his business, gets a response personally from John Love saying, hey, I'd like you to come in and talk to me about that out of the nowhere. And that was really where he got his footprint in, how he kind of realized that there was a market for it and off he ran simply because John Love responded to a, a random email blast. And then the second one is Wired Score, which is now a new, newish sort of building rating agency for, based on technology, similar to like what lead would be for environmental. And I don't know the story as in depth, but I know that Again, John Love and Kingset were the earliest of adopters and potentially even equity investors. Don't quote me on that. There's two examples of him just being extremely upfront or ahead of the curve, right? Thinking outside the box, looking for ways to differentiate, looking for things to do that are yinging or when other people are yanging or whatever you want to say, however you want to classify it. It sounds like or clearly that's sort of the way that he lives his life. Yeah. And it was so refreshing to hear this kind of thing because going into this, so I was around in 2008 and 2009, and, and I remember going to the real estate conferences back in 08 and 09, and even a little bit of 2010, it was doom and gloom. Like it was, yeah, I still remember it like it was yesterday because it was so impactful on what was happening with the economy and real estate and the foreclosures and the banks and, and everything at that period of time. And walking out of the real estate conferences was like, oh my God, how are we going to make it through the next year? And what are we going to do? And this market's going to fall apart. And, and there wasn't a single positive thing. And coming into this conference, I was wondering, is it going to be a repeat of 08 and 09? Are we going to hear that same thing? And it was great to see that everyone was completely on a different page from that period of time. And I think John did a great job summarizing it and pointing everyone in the right direction. Right? He gave those four or five or six points and saying, do these things, people. It's not what it was a decade ago or in 08, 09. We're in a good spot. It was reinforced by all the speakers and most of the speakers that were speaking over the last couple of days as related to the economy and real estate. And I think John did a great job pointing everyone in the right direction and saying, we could be successful and we could do it together. Well, on the theme of this being a very positive conference, there was that poll at the end, you know, and this is this is pulling a couple of thousand people who just spent two days watching 
this conference. And it was, are you more optimistic or less optimistic after watching the conference the last two days? There's four categories. It was a little bit optimistic, a lot optimistic, or the two negative options. And every single answer fell at a minimum in the little bit optimistic category. And then the balance fell in the a lot optimistic. There was nobody ranking on the pessimistic side. So in terms of market sentiment, I think they were coming in very strong to 2021. A vaccine will do that, I guess, eh? <laughs> All right, Aaron and I always love ending on a high note. And I think, I think that was it. Peter, we want to thank you for coming on for not just the Toronto Real Estate Forum top five highlights that we did, but for the previous four. It was great. It was great covering the conference season with you over these last couple of months. Uh, we want to thank First National for powering the podcast. We want to thank Informa for inviting us to do this and introducing us to Peter to make this all happen. Uh, there will be no after show today because this basically was just an after show of the forum. So we're not going to then jump into it again. So that is it. We hope you enjoyed it. That is the conference season. On to the next year. And once again, thanks of all, Peter. Thanks, Peter. It was Aaron, great. Adam, thanks so much. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.